Last week, or I guess not last week, but last time I preached on this, we looked at the example of Jesus Christ, right? And we asked Him, just as the disciples did, Lord, teach us to pray. And we learned some different elements of His praying there. And this week, I want to look at an example in the Old Testament, maybe potentially the greatest example in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at Moses. And so we're coming to Moses and we're asking that same question, Moses, teach us to pray. What things can we learn from him? And I want to take the same approach that we did last time, which was we looked at actual, we, we looked at John 17, remember, an actual example of Jesus praying. And my point in that was we can learn things from people if they teach us about praying, but we can and we will learn much more by seeing it. By seeing the Lord Jesus praying, we saw things of His praying that we can imitate. So I want to take the same sort of approach with Moses and actually use examples of Moses' praying that it would teach us how to pray. So I have four examples, and I want to read them before we go, you know, go any further into it. We're going to read these, and then we'll come back through and we'll begin to see what Moses can teach us about praying. So the first one is in Exodus 32. Now we're going to come back to each of these a number of times through the message. So, you know, maybe just try to keep your place there because we're going to kind of move through them back and forth a bunch. But the first one is in Exodus 32, and I want to read verses 7 through 14. This is the situation where Moses was up on the mountain, the Israelites made this golden calf. And now Moses is going to intercede for the people before God, all right? So Exodus 32, starting in verse 7. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I, make, that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored Yahweh his God and said, O Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The next one. Exodus chapter 33, we're going to read uh, 1 through 6 and then 12 through 17. Now this is when God is 
now commanding Israel to depart from Sinai, to move on. And God is going to tell them, I'm not going to go with you. And then Moses is going to pray. So 33, starting in verse 1. And Yahweh said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now look to verse 12. Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. The next one in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11. I'm going to read 1 through 15. So this is a situation the people here are complaining. And Moses is heavy burdened bearing for these people by himself. And so he's going to bring a prayer before the Lord. Numbers 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of Yahweh about their misfortunes. And when Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to Yahweh, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah because the fire of Yahweh burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, and the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of... Delium. The people went about and gathered it and, and, and ground it in handmills or beat it in the mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of Yahweh blazed hotly and Moses was displeased. And Moses said to Yahweh, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? 
that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I able to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. And the last one, Numbers 14. I'm going to read 1 through 20. This is when the people are refusing to enter into the promised land. They, the, those spies come back, they give a bad report, and the people don't want to enter in. And here's what takes place. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader. And go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh, del if Yahweh delights in us, he will bring us into this land. And give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Yahweh, and do not fear the people of the land. They are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of Yahweh appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to Yahweh, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard of you, O Yahweh. They have heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Yahweh, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. <coughs> now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations whom have heard your fame will say, it is because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land that He swore to give them that He has killed them in the wilderness. And now please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please, 
pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your word. <clears throat> okay. So as we look here at the prayers of Moses, you can notice a few things right away, okay? One, the man receives answers to his prayers. Every single time, God answers him in accordance with his praying. That's why I wanted to read those sections there right after. Moses finished praying and the Lord says to him, I have pardoned according to your word. So Moses prays and the Lord answers him in accordance with his praying every single time. And you know what, brethren, we might attribute that to any number of things. But what I want us to learn from Moses today, and potentially the reason for which Moses is receiving answers to his praying, is because Moses is building a case before the Lord why the Lord ought to do what it is that he's asking. What I mean is, it is not enough for Moses to simply state the thing that he wants. But Moses is going to come before the Lord and he's going to bring reason after reason after reason why God ought to be moved to do what it is that he's asking. Brethren, he's praying like a lawyer who might be stating his case before a judge. And additionally, he seems to be praying in this way, stating his case, but it's, but it's ordered. It's not random. Moses knows that he does, in fact, have a case to make before the Lord for what he is requesting. His petitions are not just a set of random sentences strung together. He's not, he's not a hasty type of lawyer who just comes into the courtroom and begins to spout off the first things that come to his mind. He's, he's got a plan here of how he's going to address God and get the thing that he desires. His statements are thought through, brethren. They carry weight. And when we come before the Lord in prayer, we ought to ask ourselves this same kind of question. Have we legitimate reason to pray for what we're praying for? How do we plan to bring this request before the Lord? What are some reasons that we might have that we could say, Lord, here's why we're asking for this. Brethren, God forbid that we end up before the King of Kings and we end up talking in circles because we don't know what to say and we don't know, we're, we're, we end up doing exactly what our Lord warned us against. You remember that in Matthew 6, He says, When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles, for they think they're going to be heard for their many words. Brethren, God forbid we come into the throne room of the kingdom of God and we don't have any words, we don't have anything to bring Him, we just end up talking in circles a bunch of random things brought together in our petitions. Brother, we need purpose in our praying. And Moses is doing this in such a way to receive answer from God. Spurgeon talks about this in, in a sermon that he had preached. It was entitled, uh, Order and Argument in Prayer. And uh, I read this many years ago. And... Uh, I want to read to you a little section of this. It's, it's not too long, but I, he talks about this and he, he, just, he explains it really well. 
He says, the ancient saints were wont with Job to order their cause before God. That is to say, as a petitioner coming into court, does not come there without thought to state his case on the spur of the moment, but he enters into the audience chamber with his suit well prepared, having moreover learned how he ought to behave himself in the presence of the great one to whom he is appealing. It is well to approach the seat of the King of Kings as much as possible with premeditation and preparation, knowing what we are about, where we are standing, and what it is to which we have a, a desire to obtain. In times of peril and distress, we may fly to God just as we are, as the dove enters the cleft of the rock, even though her plumes are ruffled. But in ordinary times, we should not come with an unprepared spirit. Now he's going to liken this to the sacrificial system. He says, see yonder priest. He has a sacrifice to offer, but he does not rush into the court of the priest and hack the bull with the first axe upon which he can lay his hand. But when he rises, he washes his feet at the brazen laver. He puts on his garments. He adorns himself with the priestly vestments. Then he comes to the altar with the victim properly divided according to the law and is careful to do to the command, even to such a simple matter as placing of the fat and the liver and the kidneys. And he takes, he takes the blood in the bowl and pours it in the appropriate place at the foot of the altar not throwing it just as it may occur to him. And he kindles a fire, not with common flame, but with the sacred fire from off the altar. Now this ritual is all superseded, but the truth which it taught remains the same. Our spiritual sacrifices should be offered with holy carefulness. God forbid that our prayers should be a mere leaping out of one's bed and kneeling down and saying anything that comes first to hand. On the contrary, May we, may we wait upon the Lord with holy fear and sacred awe. Now you can see, brethren, right? The point. And you know what? We see Moses praying this way. He's, he's ordering, brethren. He's arguing his case with the Lord. And this is what I want us to learn from Moses this morning. But you might think to yourself, right? Because we hear these words, argument, ordered, case, and these things kind of might sound contentious. And you might think to yourself, okay, this idea of praying, ordering an argument or a case before the Lord, kind of sounds maybe a little bit irreverent. I'm not sure if I want to follow Moses in that kind of thing. But I want to remind you of two things, brethren. The first is this, what was said of Moses. Numbers 12, 3. The man Moses was very meek, more than all people, who were on the face of the earth. You see, brethren, Moses was a humble man. He wasn't an arrogant man. And yet Moses is able to pray this way in humility. You remember last time, what was one of the things that we talked about, at least in relation to what I'm saying right now, about the praying of Jesus? Reverence. That's true. I did talk about specificity. But, but in this regard, right, reverence. Jesus prayed with reverence to his Father. And brethren, we got to pray with reverence to our Father. No doubt about that. But we can see that Moses is a humble man who's coming before the Lord with humility and reverence, and yet also he's able to pray in such a way that he states his case before the Lord. And God answers. And secondly, and even more importantly, the Lord Jesus taught us to pray this way, brethren. In Luke 18, you remember the parable of the persistent widow. 
You remember what happens there, right? She's coming before this judge and she's stating her case and stating her case and stating her case. And the Lord tells us he gave that parable so that we would always pray and not lose heart. And here we see this woman doing exactly what we're talking about, brethren, bringing this case before a judge. And Jesus gives us that parable to teach us about praying. Brethren, it's not irreverent to pray in this manner. It is biblical to pray this way. So what I want to do is I want to show you, we're going to go back through some of these prayers of Moses, and I want to show you some of the elements that Moses is bringing into his praying to state his case before the Lord. What are the things he brings up? What are the reasons he's using as to why the Lord's got to answer him? What is it that, uh, that moves the Lord to answer his entreaty, brethren? I want to look at five of these, five ways that Moses makes his case. And these are ways, brethren, we ought to learn to pray this way. So the first one is this, appealing to the simple fact that we are his people. Moses uses this before the Lord, appealing to the simple fact that we are his people. Number two, recalling what God has done in the past and then calling on him now to act that way in the future. Number three, calling upon God to act based upon His character and His attributes. Number four, calling upon God to act for the sake of His own glory. And number five, calling upon God to keep His promises. Now let's begin with this first one. Calling upon God to act based upon the simple fact that we are His people. Now, Brother Moses seems to use this a lot. He's appealing to God with this reality. He does it first in Exodus 32. So you can go look there. Exodus 32, verse 11, right? God is going to destroy the people because of the golden calf situation there, and Moses intercedes. And it says in verse 11, Moses implored Yahweh his God and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Now, brethren, if you look back to verse 7, you can see what significance this has. Because God tells Moses something in verse 7. He says this, Yahweh said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And Moses responds back to God in verse 11. And he tells him, No, Lord, these are your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt. They're not my people, Lord. They're yours, he tells him in verse 11. These are the people you've redeemed. You've gathered these people. They're your people, Lord. And now why, O oh God, does your anger burn hot against them? Well, there's a strong case Moses is making with the Lord. These are not my people, Lord. They're your people. He does it again here in, in 33, chapter 33, 12 through 16. The people, right? God tells them, you're going to leave Sinai. I'm not going with you, right? And then in verse 13, Moses is praying and he says this. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. 
Then he goes on in verse 16. He says this, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So you can see Moses' case here before the Lord. These are God's people, brethren. And the whole thing that makes them distinct as God's people is that God is with them. And Moses is praying, God, how can it be that you would leave your people and not go with them? Brother, it's the very thing that makes them distinct as God's people, that he's with them. You can see how Moses is making his case here. Now look at Numbers 11. He does this again. Numbers 11. The people here, they're rebelling again. Moses is weary, and so he, he prays here to the Lord, starting in verse 11. Moses, Moses said to Yahweh, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? that you lay the burden of all this people on me. Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing, ch a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where, I am, where, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So brethren, Moses is desperate here, brethren, desperate. And his prayer is, Lord, I did not conceive this people. What's the point? You did, Lord. These are your people. These are not my people, God. These are your, you made this people and I am not able to bear them up. Lord, won't you help me for the sake of your people? Now, brethren, this is a powerful way to pray before the Lord. Because, listen, God loves his people and he desires to do them good. You know the words of our Lord in Matthew 7. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Brethren, your Father desires to give good things to His children, just as you parents delight to give good things to your children. Is this not true? Brethren, I remember years ago when we were planning on, on buying Hudson a bunk bed. We told them we were going to buy him a bunk bed. And we didn't really know when that was going to happen. And he would always ask about it. Daddy, you going to buy me a bunk bed? You going to buy me a bunk bed? Over and over and over and over and over again. And then one day I walk into the, to the playroom. It was when we were living on Santa Clara. And I, I walk into the playroom. And he's in there by himself playing and talking to himself, doing whatever he's doing, you know. And, and, he, and he was saying to himself, yep, my daddy's going to buy me a bunk bed because he loves me. My daddy's going to buy me a bunk bed. Brethren, it was powerful to hear that. To hear him think that way, brethren, that he knew his father cared for him and his dad was going to do it. It's just a matter of time. It's going to happen. Brethren, Spurgeon, going back to him again here, Spurgeon prayed this way. There, there was a, a time Spurgeon suffered from gout, all kinds of different ailments. But one time 
he, he talks about he was so just, the pain was unbearable. He was surrounded by nurses and different people, and, and he told everybody, get out of the room. And all the people go out of the room, and he basically says he got before the Lord in prayer, and he, he told the Lord, Lord, if my children were suffering how I was suffering, and I could do something about it, Lord, I would do something about it. And now he says, he said something to the effect of, Father, I'm your child, and you love me. Would you not help me? And brethren, he said that the pain went away, and it never came back the same. Brethren, this is a powerful way to pray before the Lord, because he cares for his children. He desires to do them good. Brother Moses knew this. This is why he is bringing this. He, when he brings this petition before the Lord, he is constant to bring this idea. Lord, these are your people. Do them good, Lord. Now, another element that Moses brings out in his praying, as he's making his case, brethren, he remembers God's faithfulness in the past, what God has done previously for them, and then he calls upon God to act in like manner as to what he had done before. Look at Moses, or, uh, Numbers 14. Numbers 14, this is, again, the people are refusing to enter into the promised land, and in verse 19, Moses prays. <clears throat> he says, Please pardon the iniquity of this people, According to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So you can see, right, Moses, he's bringing before the Lord his past actions. And he's calling upon him to act in the same way, brethren. He's saying to him, Lord, this people, yes, they're rebellious. But they were rebellious before. And Lord, you were merciful towards them before. You were patient with them before. And now, Lord, why are you going to destroy them now? It's like he's asking the Lord, Lord, did you bring them this far just to now destroy them now? Just to abandon them now? When you bore with them all that time already, Lord? Again, brother, this is powerful before the Lord. Because God is not one to abandon His purposes. Remember, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Brother, if God has acted in such a way in the past, it ought to be powerful for us to appeal to him to act that way again, brethren, for us in the future. Brother, when God saves one of your family members, appeal to him to do it again. Lord, you saved so-and-so, now save that person. You did it once, Lord, do it again. When, we, when God gives us some fruit down at the abortion mill, brethren, appeal to God to do it again. God, we've seen a child saved. Give us another one. Give us another one, Lord. Brethren, this kind of thing, bringing this before the Lord, that He would remain and act faithful towards His people, and be their help because He has been faithful and has been their help in the past. And the very fact that God has done that before is reason for us to say, God, do it again. This is, brethren, is this not what we read in Psalm 90? The top of that, that psalm, it's a prayer of Moses. 
And brethren, he begins that psalm by saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Probably a better translation might be refuge. Lord, you've been this to us. What God has done in the past. And you know what he says at the end of that? Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of your hands. So you see this, brethren. Now he's calling upon God to do and be what he has already been for them. Acting in accordance with how God has been in the past. Brethren, this is mighty before the Lord. Third thing here. In Moses' argumentation, he is calling upon God to act in accordance with his character and his attributes. Now, this is common in the scriptures. This is common in the scriptures. You see it a handful of times, but Moses brings it out in Numbers 14 also. So once again, the people refusing the end of the promised land, Moses interceding for them. Look what it says here in 17 and 18. And now, please... Let the power of Yahweh be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord, Yahweh, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, you see, Moses is saying, Lord, you are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. You forgive iniquity. These are things that God has said about Himself. These are not things that Moses has said about God. These are things that God has said about God. And He's bringing these things out to the Lord and He's saying, God, act in accordance with these things. Be slow to anger. Be steadfast in your love towards your people. Forgive them, O God. This is who you said you are, Lord. Act in these ways. You remember well, brethren, that Abraham does this as well. Abraham brings this out in Genesis 18 when God is going to destroy Sodom. And what does Abraham pray to the Lord? In general terms. Well, I get a drink of water. <laughs> That's right. He says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you, he says, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous are as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Abraham appealing upon God's character, upon God's attributes, to not destroy that city if he could find but ten righteous in it. Now you know, obviously, brethren, right? city gets destroyed because there isn't but ten righteous people in that city. But nevertheless, the case that Abraham is making before the Lord is the same. He's appealing to God upon his character and upon his attributes. Brethren, powerful way to pray before the Lord. The fourth thing here, as Moses is building his case, he appeals to God to act for the sake of his own glory. Now, brethren, this is big. This is big before the Lord because God is about His own glory, brethren. And rightfully so, right? Remember Psalm 46, verse 10? Be still and know that I am Lord. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God desires to be exalted and glorified, brethren. And when God's glory is at stake, He's going to act, brethren. Moses knows this. He brings this out. Look at Exodus 32. Exodus 32, look at verse 12. Moses interceding for these people, brethren, and look at what he says to the Lord. Lord, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. He does the same thing again in Numbers 14. Go look at that. Numbers 14, starting in verse 13, it says, But Moses said to Yahweh, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Yahweh, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations whom have heard your fame will say, It is because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he killed them in the wilderness. Now, brethren, you can see where Moses, what Moses is doing here, brethren, he is appealing to the Lord for his own namesake, for his own glory. Brethren, he's telling the Lord, Lord, if you kill these people off, what are the Egyptians going to say? What are the nations going to say, Lord? How is this going to affect your name? What are the people going to say about you, O God? They're going to say that Yahweh couldn't do it. They're going to say that God had no power to do what He promised to do. Lord, they're going to mock you over there. Your name is at stake. Your glory is at stake. Lord, if you kill off this people, are you going to be exalted in the earth or are you going to be mocked in the earth? Lord, what's, your, what's going to happen with your name if you do this? Brethren, again, this is big with the Lord because God is about His glory. He's about His own namesake. What a case Moses is able to make with the Lord. You know what, brother? Moses isn't the only one that prays this way. I want to I I read you guys this story. It's long. But it's one of the best displays of this in all the scripture. Hezekiah is king of Judah. Hezekiah prays this way before the Lord. 2 Kings 18. This is one of the greatest examples of this in all the Bible. And I want to read to you this story. 2 Kings 18. <clears throat> if you look there in verse 13, you can see what's happening here, okay? It says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So here's the situation. Hezekiah's king in Judah, Sennacherib's king in Assyria, and he's coming to bring war against Judah. Now I'm going to read here 
a handful of verses, okay? Let's start in verse 17. I want to see how this unfolds. The king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabisaris, and the Rabshakeh with the great army of Lachish to the king of Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called out for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So here's these people coming, people of the army of the enemies, and they come up to the walls here of Jerusalem, and they're calling out to the king to speak to him, and the people of the household of the king come out to the wall. Now listen to what's about to take place here, okay? And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed or a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, We trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall not worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you two thousand horses, if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants, when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is without Yahweh that I have come up against this place to destroy it. And Yahweh said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. Now, the people on the wall are going to respond. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, the son of, said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are in the wall. You see, this, they don't want the rest of the city to hear this kind of thing. Here's what it says, verse 27. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood, called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. He's mocking them. Hear the word of the great king of, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us and this city will not be given to the hand of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat his own vine and eat and each one his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water from his own cistern until I come and take, away, take you away to a land like your like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. <coughs> Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraph Seraphim, Hena? 
and Eva. Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rab Shekah. Now watch what takes place, brethren. Look at over in verse, um, verse 8. <clears throat> or rather, sorry, verse 10 of chapter 19. Here's this letter, okay? They send now this letter to Hezekiah. And here's what the letter says, starting in verse 10. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of <coughs> Sepharvim, and the king of Hena, or the kings of Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of Yahweh, spread it before Yahweh. And Hezekiah prayed before Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear and open your ears. O Yahweh, and see. Now here's what he's saying, brethren. Open your ears, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Syria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Yahweh, our God, save us, please, from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Yahweh, are God alone. By then you can see what... Hezekiah is doing here. This mockery is taking place of Yahweh. And Hezekiah receives this letter, brethren, and he takes it before the Lord and he spreads it out before God. And he tells him, God, you know what Sennacherib said. You know what these people think. Act. Act, O God, for your own namesake, that the world might know that there is no God but Yahweh. But then you remember what it, <clears throat> Elijah said on Mount Carmel. He has those prophets of Baal there. You know what he asks them? Where is your God? But you know what's happening? We're praying this way before the Lord. But then we're coming before the Lord and we're asking him, Lord, don't let it be that the nations say, where is your God? But then we're calling upon God to act for his glory, brethren, for his own namesake. Lord, you know what they say. You know what they think, O oh God. Act, Lord, glorify your name. Brethren, this is, this is Ezra's concern. Remember, we read that passage when we talked about prayer and fasting on that Wednesday. Ezra, he's got the people gathered there by the river, and he, he already told the king, we don't need your little security bunch to take us back to Jerusalem. 
God's going to get us back to Jerusalem. And then Ezra thinks, we need to fast and pray. Because now God's glory is at stake. If God doesn't get us back to Jerusalem safely, we're going to look like a bunch of fools to the king. And the name of our God is going to be defamed. God's glory is at stake, brethren. God, listen, brethren, this is so big with the Lord. God even acts in this way, in ways, in, in situations we might not think. You know what happens with, with, uh, um, oh, now I'm blanking on his name. Not Manasseh, other king in Israel, really wicked. Ahab. I want to say Asa, but I knew it wasn't Asa. Ahab, okay? You remember what happens with Ahab, brethren? You get this, this army that comes up against Ahab. They fight them there in Israel. And the people go home and they say, well, we're going to go, and next time we're going to go fight them in the valleys. Because God is a God of the hills. Yahweh is a God of the hills. He's not a God of the valleys. You know what happens, brethren? They pray and God defeats those enemies with this wicked king Ahab. Because God is saying, they're saying I can't defeat them in the valleys. I'm killing them in the valleys too. On the hills, in the valleys, anywhere my name is at stake, I'm acting. God is about His glory, brethren. This is a mighty way to pray before the Lord. Now the last thing that Moses does, building his case. Exodus 32. Go back there. God or Moses is calling upon God here to act in accordance with his promises. Exodus 32 verse 13. He says Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses, he's looking back now to the promises that God has made. And he realizes, brethren, that although Israel in this moment is rebellious and God is ready to strike them down, Moses knows, Lord, you can't. You can't because you promised something. He knows God's character. He knows God can't go back on His promises. He knows that God promised to Abraham to bring his descendants into that land. And so he takes this promise and he holds it up before the Lord. And he says, Lord, you promised. you got to remember your promise, Lord. Don't abandon your promise. Well, Moses, is, it's like he's thinking what we have in Hebrews chapter 6. You know what happens there? The author of Hebrews says, God swore a promise to Abraham. And when he did, he swore by himself because there's no one greater to swear by. And he goes on to say that when God gave this promise to Abraham, he sealed it with an oath and it made it unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Brethren, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. When God makes a promise, brethren, every single time, not 99%, 100% of the time, God keeps His 
promises. God is never unfaithful to his promises. And Moses, he's making his case before the Lord, brethren, and he holds this promise up before him that, he, that God himself made. And he calls upon God to be faithful to his promises. Now, brethren, again, those of you who, who have kids, you know this. this. This is a powerful thing, brethren. I, I can't be the only one here that's ever, maybe some of you already know where I'm going. I can't be the only one that's ever experienced this thing. Any of you ever made a promise to your kids? And maybe you forgot about it, but they didn't forget about it. And you know what, brethren? They come to you and they say, Dad, Mom, you, you, you said you would do this. You promised you would do this. You know, every morning I tell Hudson I'll, I'll read a chapter of Pilgrim's Progress to him in the morning. And he's in the morning. There he is. Book, you said it. You said it. He's holding me to it. Brethren, but immediately, right, if, if you've ever entered into that situation, your children bring that up to you, what is, what is your sense immediately? i got to be faithful to my word. Cannot go back on my word. Brother, this is what we're doing. We're bringing the promises of God before Him. We're bringing those promises back to the Lord, and we're saying, Lord, You said, You said You would do this. Lord, we didn't make this up. We didn't decide that this would take place. Now, sometimes that... Sometimes we want to do that, and it's not a promise God made. Sometimes my kids do that too. God, you, or Dad, you said I could do this. No, I didn't say you could do that. <laughs> I didn't promise you that. You know? But, brethren, if we have a promise before the Lord, right? Brethren, what power this is. I'm telling you, brethren, there's no better way to pray than this way, to bring promises that we have in the Scriptures. And you know what, brethren? If you have a promise in the Scriptures, there is no need for ifs or buts in any prayer to be offered if you have a promise. No, no, Lord, if this, Lord, if that. Brethren, if you have a promise, you have a guarantee from God that He will do what you're asking. Listen, just an example. James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Brethren, if you are in a situation where you are in need of wisdom, you have a text right here that promises you wisdom. You will get wisdom if you ask for it. Now you remember, right? What does he say after this? Come in faith, right? You, you got to come in faith because if you doubt, you best not suppose you're going to receive anything from the Lord. But if you come in faith, you have an absolute promise from God that you will receive what you're asking for. There's hundreds, brethren, thousands of promises in the Bible for us to cling to. Bring them before the Lord. Find those promises and call upon God to be faithful to His promises to you. Some of you maybe have seen it. I, every time at the prayer meeting, I have this little red book. It's called, well, I don't even know what it says on the title. I think it just says Bible Promises. But I had heard about that because I had heard Spurgeon carried it around in his back pocket. And so I did some some searching and I bought a used one a long time ago. It's just a book full of all the promises in the Bible. Brethren, however you can do it, get a hold of these promises in Scripture, brethren, and bring them before the Lord. Listen to this. This is a section of R.A. Torrey's book on prayer concerning the praying of George Mueller. Now, we've probably said this before, but I want to read this to you. He says, one of the mightiest men of prayer in the last generation was George Mueller of Bristol, England. George Mueller never prayed for a thing just because he wanted it 
or even just because he felt it was greatly needed for God's work. When it was laid upon George Mueller's heart to pray for anything, he would search the scriptures to find if there was some promise that covered the case. Sometimes he would search the scriptures for days before he presented his position, petition to God. Right? You talk about ordering your case before the Lord, looking for days in the scripture. Give me a promise, God, because when I ask you for this, I want to know you're giving it. Sometimes he would search the scriptures for days before he presented his petition to God. And then when he found the promise with an open Bible before him and his finger upon the promise, he would plead that promise. And so he received what he asked. He always prayed with an open Bible before him. Brethren, what a powerful way to pray. To bring promises before the Lord. Calling upon God to keep his promises. So you've seen these elements of Moses. How does he bring his case before the Lord? Brethren, we've got to pray this way. We need to be determined like Moses to receive what it is that we're asking for. Remember, brethren, you remember Jacob? He's wrestling with the Lord there in Genesis 32, and he tells him. He doesn't, he doesn't tell him, Lord, if it be your will, bless me. He says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Brother, Jacob is determined to receive this blessing from the Lord, and he's not going to have it any other way. Brother, may God help us to pray like this, brethren, to come with an ordered case before the Lord, brethren, to lay an argument out. Lord, here's why we need this. And Lord, we need it for this. And we need it for this. And we need it for this. And Lord, your namesake. And Lord, what about this over here? And we got all these reasons to say to the Lord, God, please do what we're asking you. Brother, may God help us to pray this way so that we would see answers to our petitions, brother. Don't you want that? Don't you want answers for God to answer your prayers, brethren? I was just praying this morning and I was, what came to my mind, I was thinking of, again, going back to George Mueller. I mean, the way that he in, in, intentioned himself to live, he did it for a very particular reason. And he says in the beginning of his autobiography, he wanted to live that way so that the people of God would know that God answers prayer. I mean, what a, what a God-glorifying thing that is. Not so that he might receive glory, but that he might say, Lord, I want to live my life never asking anybody for resources, trusting you for everything, bringing everything to prayer. We're living absolutely by faith, walking eyes closed. And we're just walking by faith. And he said he did it so that the world would look at what was happening there and go, wow, God answers prayer. I mean, there's no other way to explain what is happening right here. Brother, may God help us, brother. May God help us to pray in this way that we would see God moved to act for the sake of his people, for the sake of his own glory. Let me pray.